0: visit the all in website. Okay, you can open up your Bibles to Leviticus 1. It's the third book in the Bible. Um, Genesis and Exodus have been longer books, not only because they have more chapters, but because they have foundational Christian concepts that we can start to reference as we go through the rest of the book. The beginning of Leviticus, and and I'll start with um, context a little bit. We're still at Mount Sinai. In fact, the first word of Leviticus is now in in most Bibles. In other words, they're assuming that you're picking up the next scroll out of the pile, right? So Exodus ends with the journeys that they're on, and then Leviticus goes now. The Lord spoke to Moses again. It's the same author, same piece. They're assuming that you're reading straight through. It's kind of like the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Right? They're a pair; they should go together, right? And that's what Leviticus is to Exodus. Exodus is walking us into it. The word Leviticus—this is why it's nice to be here the first day of Bible study—is you get the contextual stuff for the whole book, right? The word Leviticus is actually um, comes from the Latin word liber, or liber, or for the Le- Levites. This is a book that is for the Levites, not just Levi, um, but the Levites, and, and it outlines the practices of the priesthood. So that's either good or bad. Um, first of all, I don't think there's any accident in the world that it ended up as the third book. Because if you're like me and you've tried to read the Bible, I'm going to read through the whole Bible. That's my New Year's resolution, right? You get through Genesis. Oh, this is awesome. This is great. You get through half of Exodus and you're like, oh, I'm cranking through this. And then you start to hit the tabernacle instructions. And it's different when you're in a Bible study where you're getting taught that. But some people that gets really dry because you've got like a workshop manual. And then you get to Leviticus, the book of the Levites, and you've got an HR document, right? That was for you, Dan. Um, <laughs> but you have a document that says, here's your job as the Levites. Here's what you need to do. Here's what the people do, and then you do this in response. And there's a whole book of like what to do. So that can, I think, for the faint of heart, just picking up, starting to try to read through the whole Bible, you get to Leviticus, and it feels painful. And that creates a lifetime stigma. And for me, that stigma lasted into my 30s, where I just didn't want to touch Leviticus. Like, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, forget it, right? And you just say, I'm just going to skip to John. And then you start feeling good about your Bible studies again. And those narratives are easier to read, but it's kind of like going from picture books in Genesis, right? And if you've ever seen Hilbert's story of the Bible or Kid, kids' Bibles, they totally skip this stuff, right? This is not the picturesque stuff. But what it is, is a lot deeper understanding of our faith and our theology. It's for grown-ups, right? You read Genesis and Exodus to kids. But when you get to Leviticus, I think there's a reason why it's third. It's a progression of faith. Like Genesis, I can just hear about God. Exodus, I can hear how God frees me and how I go from slavery to freedom, right? Leviticus, it's how to live your life after that. Right? The Red Sea is parted. The miracles are done. Now it's time to grind out that faith for 50 years, and this is what you do. Mandy's trying to form habits. These are the habits you make to live a life of faith that has fruit in it, and that's the cool part. And then you come back to it like even with more resolution, and you're like, I will get through the Bible. Dang it. And you force yourself through it, but when you read it on your own without really unpacking it, it's it's just like a grind read. And I don't know how many of you have been at that point with Leviticus. You're just like, I'm gonna read through it because dang it, I have more will than than you know I can overcome. And I hope that as we go through Leviticus, what you'll find is if you talk to a lot of pastors that have taught through the whole Bible, this is one of their favorite books. It's one of their favorite books to teach. It's one of their favorite books to learn. But you have to like understand there's five sacrifices. And when you memorize those five sacrifices and know what they are and how they should play out in your life or how you interpret those should play out in your life, that's an amazing moment in your spiritual walk. Because then you realize, oh, my goodness. And I realized growing, growing up Baptist, it's not just a prayer of salvation. Like there's, a whole, there's five sacrifices, not just one. You know, I thought you say a magic prayer of salvation and you're saved forever. And voila, it's like waving a magic wand and you're on your way to heaven. And the Bible has more to it than that, right? There's a walk with Christ that should happen after the prayer. And like the sacrifices, there's one sacrifice that atones for your sin, but the other four get to be really interesting as believers. So assuming everyone in this room's made some sort of commitment to Christ, and maybe you didn't grow up Baptist where it was a magic prayer, but Mm -hmm. you're in this walk with Christ, and you want to be following the Lord, and that's what your heart's desire is then suddenly these sacrifices get really interesting because these are the symbols of how we should live our life out today. We don't get to kill cows, but there's something about understanding why they killed the cows and what it represented in their faith and how Jesus fulfilled that. that gets to be just this connection between the old and new Testament. You're like, this is incredible. So God gives us the book of Leviticus. He gives it at a point in our journey where now we have to figure this stuff out. And this is where we're at. So This was a really fun week for Bible study. First of all, because my lovely wife kept coming in every 10 minutes when she could see I was getting ready, and she's like, did you see in verse 4 how there's this, this, and that? And she couldn't resist because she loves the book of Leviticus. And it, like, comes through, and she has Bible studies written up for Leviticus, and she shares them with ladies at our church and all that sort of thing. And I'm like, honey, just let me get through it, please. Um, But at the same point, she had tons of good stuff, too. So a lot of what you're going to hear tonight is partially Steph's preparation, and I want to give her credit and cite my sources on things. But I also want to cite Peter too. So hold your finger in Leviticus, and if you're quick at Bible searching, flip all the way to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, and I just want to set up Leviticus with this understanding that the new believers had. You'd think they, that somebody who knew Jesus personally would be like, all I need is Jesus, and I'm good to go. And that's not how they perceived it. It's consistently in the New Testament. They will reference the Old Testament to get meaning out of what they just experienced and what they just saw. The miracles of Jesus don't mean much outside of the Old Testament. It was because they grew up in this tradition that it had meaning and richness and fullness. And Jesus is more than just a Sunday morning, you know, cartoon flannel board, right? There's more to it than that. And it's deep and it's rich and it's thrilling when you see it. So 1 Peter chapter two, and I'm gonna read verses, uh, I'm gonna start at verse five. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood who's the holy priesthood? The Levites. What book do they start with? Leviticus, right? This is if you are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So these sacrifices are metaphors and we need to offer spiritual versions of what we're going to read about tonight in Leviticus. That's kind of cool, but you're a chosen. Oh, therefore it's also contained in the scripture. And he cites the Old Testament then for three more verses, right? He's just citing the Old Testament. Verse 9, he says, But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we even have, oh, no, we have the wonderfully made T-shirt. I thought we Into his marvelous light. Who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have mercy. Folks, your job is to be a holy priesthood, to go out into your jobs, out into your classrooms, and be the holy person in that room that gives mercy and grace and love to everybody you know. That's your job. And if you're not knowing what the Levites did, you don't know what your job is. And then you just kind of flounder through your faith for years and years and years. But this is God's will for his servant, and there's a huge reward in studying Leviticus in that you learn how to be a priest. You become a model of practice, and you don't even have to memorize all 613 rules. Now, the rabbinical priesthood has libraries full of thousands more rules that they tack on top of this, and that's where they got in trouble with Jesus, is they added more rules. But the 613, the basics, the bald head is a clean head, we're going to find that here in Leviticus. All right? Now, the Lord called to Moses is how we start it, and we start to see this purpose of what we're doing. And he spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, which if you were here for Exodus, they built a tabernacle. And now God dwells with them. And that's amazing. It hasn't happened since the Garden of Eden. God was walking and talking in the garden with them. Sin, it's broken. And then suddenly you have this thing where they're back to dwelling together. God sits in the middle of his people and he dwells with them. That had to be cool to wake up in the morning, get out of your tent and go, oh, there's God. And you can see the cloud, the Shekinah glory over that tabernacle. And at this point, they hadn't broken covenant with God. So he spoke to them from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, from the tabernacle, um, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, of the flock, any... So first of all, I like Leviticus in that it takes all of one verse to get into the book, right? So We're already studying, okay... This is how sacrifices happen, and we'll we'll get into that a little bit. The location, then, is uh, an important piece of what's going on, that he called to Moses in verse 1. We know this is a conversation. This is a covenantal relationship, and Moses is the mediator. Um, To approach, verse 2, when any of you brings, that word approach is karav in the Hebrew. It means to draw near, to come close to God. So any one of the people of Israel, if they want to draw close to God, here's what you got to do to get close to God. So this is kind of pre-covenant, right? So individuals are responsible for their own covenant in the Old Testament, and they are in the New Testament too. Every individual has a choice to make and will keep going from there. This is a massive and a huge privilege that anyone in the kingdom could come close to God. Compare that to other ancient religions. People who got close to the gods were the priests, all the lay people had to stay far away but give your money to the, to, the, to the thing. And what scares me sometimes is we see churches like that today too. The only people really close to God are the leadership. And all the people, you just come, bring your tithes, and go home. And that's the nature of the relationship. But in Israel, that's not the nature of the relationship at all. Anybody can approach the altar and becoming drawing near to close to God. The sacrificial system, for those of you light of heart, we're going to talk about intestines today, all sorts of things. It's a graphic image, right? And they have a sacrificial system. Our purpose in this Bible study is not necessarily to say whether or not that's good or bad. Our purpose in this Bible study is to understand what the Bible says, and then each person in this room can decide what to do with that. I think cleaning out the intestines is symbolic, and I love that. It's a great symbol. Um, However, I'm not encouraging anyone to go out and start killing cattle tomorrow. That's not what we're doing here. But we do want to understand what is God trying to say through these relationships. Um, Every religion at the time had a sacrificial system. Having sacrifices is not unique to these people. Mm -hmm. It is today. We don't really do these, largely because of the influence of Christianity on the planet. Is that sacrifices have kind of become passe across the planet even though there are still some religions that give animal sacrifices and do it regularly. Um, But at this time in this period of history, every major religion in the world had a sacrificial system. What makes it different is the rules we're about to read. They had limits to it. They had prescription to it. They had order to it, that there would be a process and it would be clean and it would be tidy and there would be ways to do it for different people and that everyone could approach the altar. That's Right off in verse 2, you have a completely unique version of this from what other ancient religions were doing. You bring your offering. That's how you come close to God. Of the livestock is an important phrase, and then it even emphasizes of the herd and of the flock. It had to cost people something. To give a sacrifice had to cost you. You had to give something up of value. And it couldn't be something dead. You couldn't bring roadkill. You couldn't catch a wild animal and bring it in. It had to be from your herd. It had to come from your resources, right? So we get the first of five types of sacrifice. I'm going to give you the five types as an advanced look, and then I can remind you of those next week and weeks after. But here are the five sacrifices that we find in Leviticus and in the Bible. There are burnt sacrifices, uh, which are atonement sacrifices. They're kind of like the prayer of salvation. I'm sorry, Lord. I've sinned. Here's my sacrifice to make up for that. Can we be good again? And it's that kind of thing. And the response to that is God gives forgiveness, right? And these are actually the five arguments for Jesus, too. Like, what does Jesus give you if you get saved? A, number one, you get forgiveness, right? There's the meal or the grain offering, uh, which is a gift of generosity. Lord, you're so good in my life, I want to give some of it back to you, right? So the grain offering, the, it's an eternal gift, and it happens all the time. And, and again, it's what do you get from that? Well, it represents eternal life and eternal communion with God. It's the good relationship sacrifice. It's not a a killed animal. It's it's often called a grain offering because you don't make a life sacrifice for it, right? You give grain, and that's symbolically important. There's a peace offering. We'll get to that in Chapter 3 of Leviticus. Peace offering is an identification kind of offering. It's who you are, and you identify yourself as a person of peace when you do a peace offering, right? And then there's a sin offering, Chapter 4. They actually had an offering for any and all sin in your life, especially any sins you're unaware of. So there's 613 rules, and you had people that were simple saying, Lord, I can't memorize all those. Whatever I'm guilty of, here's my sin offering. Please forgive me of stuff I'm not aware of. And the, the response to that is joy. Now you, are, you have a clean slate. It reminds me a little bit of like a confessional practice. Just get it all off your chest, and then just like, and for whatever else I've done too, Lord. And then last but not least, there's a trespass offering, Chapter 5 has that. Chapter 4 has a sin offering. And trespass offerings were also unintentional sin, but they came with a restitution. So they actually came with something where the priest would tell you what to do, which looks a lot like a a Catholic confessional practice. Here's what I – I don't know that I've done stuff the priest says, look, if you do these things, we'll do that. There's some sort of restitution action that happened after it. And again, that is like let's get back to a truthful place in our life where we fix things in our life. Oftentimes, spiritual leaders can see problems that we have in our life because they're just more mature than we are, right? And you might have somebody say something like, just for example, I'm not pointing any fingers. Well, I'll point one at me. You could have like a pastor say, you know, you tend to find fault in things a lot. You're a critical minded person. Maybe you should stop doing that. You know, let your mind dwell on things that are good and holy and true and right and peaceful. Let your mind sit on that. And you're like, but that's really, really hard. Tell you what. You work on it. That's your sacrifice. Give that up and be somebody different. And that was like a trespass offering. So all of these, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering are voluntary offerings. You give them when you feel like it, when you're aware of it. Tell them to hold my calls, Levi. (laughs) Sin and trespass offerings are required. You have to do those, right? So if you live in the nation of Israel, those are those kinds of things. Chapter 6 and 7 then goes over all five of those offerings and how they are able to relate to them. And uh, each of those then has different requirements and we're going to go through it and we're going to see how it all works. And it's the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament covenantial relationship. So all of this is to maintain fellowship with God. And I think that's important. It's part of what the Pharisees missed. All, it, it isn't just to follow the rules. It's to maintain a relationship with the God of the universe so that he dwells in your life. And that's a good thing and that's what we're seeking out. It's not possible for the blood of bulls or goats to take away sin. And that's what it says in Hebrews 10.4. It's not possible. They all knew that the killing of the animal didn't actually take away your sin. It was symbolic of what was going on in the heart. Give something that means something to yourself. Give that offering of a free will. God forgives you. It's a spiritual interaction that's manifested through a physical behavior, right? And that's what they understood in the New Testament. And they, and they go through those sorts of things. So any relationship with God has to come through faith. This is where I get frustrated when people say, well, the Old Testament isn't relevant anymore. Yes, it is. It's all about faith. They just had a different process for doing it and a different set of rules. But it's the same God, the same Jesus, the same fellowship that we're looking for in these things. And it all works the same. Okay, I'll start moving through the verses. Verse 3. If his offering's a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. I've already mentioned the free will part, but burnt is the word ola. This is really interesting. And like stack these up. And for my note takers in the room, this is the stuff to start like adding these lists. And I'll go back through when we get done. And it's pretty cool. Ola doesn't mean burnt. Like we, I think of burnt and I think Le- leaving chicken on the grill too long and you get the black stuff because it's burnt chicken. That's not what their word meant. Ola means ascending or to go up in smoke. Completely consumed, and the smoke, just like incense, represents a kind of prayer. You burn something all the way up, and it goes up in smoke. It actually reaches the heavens. It's a way to talk to God. A burnt offering is an up-and-smoke offering, right? And it is speaking to the attention that we give to something when it goes up or vertically, Right. It's not a it's not a shared offering or a community of it's not like sharing a meal. It's like you share something with God. It has to go up. It's a vertical relationship. So the burnt it represents that idea of something going up to the heavens. Right. A burnt offering is something that goes up to the heavens. It's why it has to be completely burnt and we don't leave things behind because when we give things to God. We give everything to God. Right. So it means to ascend. And that's important because we're going to come back to this. It's the one piece that's really hard to put together with Jesus, right? But it means to go up to heaven, to meet in heaven, and to have something go that direction. It's a gift that goes up, and it's a total sacrifice. The herd piece, most expensive thing that they knew of in their world. So for us, it would be like you have to give of your salary, right? That's our most expensive property, really, our contracts, right? A male... There's no reason given for why it has to be a male, but I take this stuff personal. Um, Some would say, if you do research on this, some say it's because the male animals were more valuable than female animals. Some people say that from God's perspective, that God understands that males are actually less valuable, and that's why he asks a male from the herd, because he's actually being kind of respectful of the fact that you need a herd, um, which is an interesting theological take on that. Some say that males are the profit animals and females are the population animals. And God wants populations to grow, but he wants you to give a part of your profits. That's another argument that comes from this. Again, I'm not going to get into which one is the right one because I think I just want we need to know what it says. It says take it from the herd, has value in some way, shape, or form. Without blemish, it's key here that it's not a reject, Right? You don't want to give your animals that come out with five legs. right? Mm-hmm. You want to give a normal animal that would normally have value. Don't give your scraps. I ran into this because I had this moment where I wanted to get rid of – like, I wanted to sacrifice like, illicit music that I had in my collection when I was young. So I got rid of all my secular music at one point in my life. I just want to listen to – that was my New Year's resolution. I just want to listen to godly music all the time and feed my head with the good stuff, except for U2. I'll keep my U2 yeah. albums. Right? Those were the albums, and I didn't throw them out. And I have felt guilty about that my whole life, right? Because U2 was like just too good to give it. It was my good stuff. And that's exactly the stuff that if I'm going to make a commitment like that, which the Bible doesn't say you have to do that kind of thing, but if you're gonna, that's the sort of stuff like, was I really keeping a secret from God? Was I really making a sacrifice? I really was just getting rid of old music I didn't want anymore, Right? God doesn't want the rejects from the herd. He wants you to give something that actually has value. The Pharisees take this to a whole new level because they would find a blemish. Oh, look, there's a spot of gray hair on this sheep. You can buy one of our sheeps for the low, low price of $20.99 or whatever they would charge. right? And, they, and that's one of the things Jesus got mad about. That's not the point of this. The point of this is you're not going to bring your sick animals for sacrifice. That's not the point of sacrifice. For free will, this has to be a choice. It has to be a want to, not a have to. If your heart is sick and you don't have a giving heart, don't give to the Lord, period. This is the lesson for all people in church ministry when you're working with people under you. like, Don't come and do service if you have a bad heart about it. We don't want you. Like, doesn't matter what your talents and skills are. We can do without if you have a willing, loving heart and you're doing this out of the graciousness of your heart, then you are welcome. Otherwise, go home and like pray and, and deal with those U2 albums. Gen, uh, Genesis 8, um, we see sacrifices like this before. There's a burnt offering that Noah gives. And in Genesis 22, there's a burnt offering that Abraham gives or doesn't give. The Isaac offerings called the burnt offering. When he's about to offer his son, he's gonna send it up to heaven. He's gonna give God his son, right? But of course, we know that God replaces that with a ram, and that ram becomes a burnt offering for God. So we've seen burnt offerings before. They're not new in the Bible. Um, But humans tend to get greedy about this, and that's not a good thing. And there's actually passages like Malachi 1.8, if you want to look that up in future Bible study this week. Very harsh words for people that give without a free, free will, without a caring heart on this. And the prophets get to be vivid about that. So you do it at the door. The door of the tabernacle is as close as anybody gets except for one high priest a year who goes inside the Holy of Holies, right? So the average layperson can come up to the door of the tabernacle. The burnt offering altar is actually right there at the door. It's as close as we get to God on this world or this side of heaven, right? So here's what I wonder. When Moses announces this to the people, well, we have five offerings and here's what it looks like. Who's the first person That gave the burnt sacrifice. Like who volunteered to go first? Like, yeah, I want to get close to God. And that person isn't named in the Bible, but they should be. And when I get to heaven, I want to know who's the first person that like first went back to their herd, grabbed a male bull, a bull, led them up to an altar and said, I'm here, I'm ready to give my sacrifice. Because that person is a courageous, amazing human being that said, I just want to give to the Lord. I want to send something up to God as quickly as I can. And picture this moment, right? You're go, there's this huge camp, two million people. There's dust in the air. It's nasty. Outside the camp Or like thousands of animals. And you go out and say, there's a good male without blemish. And you walk them through the camp. All the other little Israelite people are sitting outside their tent, chewing their tobacco, you know, whittling things. And they can see you walking past with your cow, and they're like, oh, they're going to do a burnt offering. And I'm sure there would be like a little crowd that would start to follow this person, right? Because anybody could do this. It was an open door for what would happen. And imagine what happens throughout the camp. Like somebody gives the first bull, and they burn this thing up. It goes up in smoke. It ascends to heaven. And that person walks away from the altar, and they're like, oh, that felt great. I have fellowship with God. And that Shekinah glory, you can see a little face in the cloud going, nice job. And you're right with God for that moment. And it's that feeling of salvation, right? When you first decided to follow Christ, that joy, and that person probably left going, yeah, I gave a bowl, but man, what I got, it changed my heart. I feel amazing. My sin is forgiven. And I know it's forgiven because Moses said so, and Moses comes with all the miracles. So that, you know, that's how this works, and it does. I can feel it in my heart. And then he tells his neighbor, and his neighbor's like, well, maybe I'll do it, but I don't have cows, so I'm just going to grab a sheep, but that's further down in the chapter. And they start bringing animals up. And suddenly, all day, every day, people are bringing gifts to the Lord, and there's this smoke coming up from that altar of atonement every single day. People just giving their heart to the Lord what does that do for the nation of israel right these are people that are being renewed one by one individual by individual there's a revival going on when they put this in place it had to be exciting but i still want to know who's the first guy or girl that gave that sacrifice that walked up to the altar and gave that sacrifice and that i think would be amazing i think out of like another kind of form of beauty is they leave that out of the bible it doesn't say who went first because it doesn't matter right? It's just more my curiosity. So, um, verse four, then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it'll be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He means any one of you in verse two, right? This isn't the priest. It's the person offering the animal gets up and close to that animal. Do you want to put your hand on the head of a bull? right? A male from the herd. I don't know if any if you know anything about farming. The males aren't always the friendliest of the critters, but you're going to get up and close to that thing. There's probably priests holding it down so it doesn't kill you, but you're going to put your hand on its head. When it says put his hand on, that's, that word put is samach in the Hebrew. It literally means to lean into something. You're not just going to put your hand on and pet it. You're going to press into his head. So the bull has to push back against you to stay upright you're going to lean into it and force yourself into it. It means to press or even to hold something up, right? So you're going to put enough force on that bull to where you're holding the bull up. This is an, this is an intimate moment. And I don't think the, any, the only way you ever experience is get out on a farm and go get close to a big animal. Horses are more docile, but you still feel the size of these beasts, Right? They're massive, and they look at you. Horses look at you with these little brown eyes, and you put your hand in their face, and they're just looking at you like, hi. You know. And cows do the same thing. They're these domesticated animals, and they're innocent, and they haven't done anything wrong. right? And then what are you going to do? You're going to slit its throat as it's looking at you while you press your other hand into its head. Oh, this is graphic. This is R-rated. It's a life for a life. There's an unmistakable identification with that animal. When you press into it, I'm putting my sins onto this animal, and God accepts that, and we're going to trade this animal's life for the one I should be paying. This poor, sweet animal with the big, brown, sweet eyes is going to give its life because I screwed up. That's the trade, right? Kafar, atonement, is to cover in the same way that the mercy seat covers the ark. The blood of this animal is going to cover or atone for your sins. Right. And it's going to be accepted because it's the rule God made. God makes the rules. This is what he'll take for a trade. You need to keep living, but he's going to take that animal that costs you something and it's going to pay the price for your sin. Verse five, he shall kill the bull before the Lord. Don't skip over that. Again, when you just read this on your own, you just naturally your brain wants to skip that image. Right that is a massive cut to the artery of the neck. You have to press into that head and lift it just a little bit. And bulls don't like to have their head pressed, right? And then you're going to take a very sharp knife, slit its throat, and the amount of blood that comes out is going to get all over everything. Don't do this in your living room, right? And the first thing they talk about is the blood, because it's going to be messy. This is where the priests come in. And the priest, the Levites, Aaron's son, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. What are they? What? Sprinkle, by the way, remember this from Exodus, doesn't just mean this thing. It means you're going to take a bucket or a bowl, collect it, and you're going to splash it all over. It means to strew about, Right. To Zerach is to scatter, straw, or splash something. They're going to take that blood, and they're all going to get messy, right? Buckets of blood would pour out of a bull's throat. Its heart alone would pump it right into that bowl. The blood represents life, Leviticus 17.11. That life is going to get spilt, and it's going to be drained out in front of everyone, and that's the priest's job. The priest's job is to shed the blood. And they take that blood and they make sure that it goes all over the temple courtyard. The, it goes on the curtains. It goes on the clothing. It goes on the altar. It goes everywhere because it's the covering or the atonement for it. So before the Lord in that verse, it shall be sprinkled before the Lord, means four different places that we'll see throughout Leviticus. It means the entrance, All over the entrance of the tabernacle, all over the altar, all over the curtain, and inside, they're going to take blood and and sprinkle or splash that on 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 the altar, on the ark itself, and on the inside of the tabernacle. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it to pieces. He, again, here is not the priesthood. It's the person giving the offering. Right? This, is an, or this is a, a ritual. It's, it's, a, it's a way in which to enter into this fellowship. So at this time skinning an animal is not a big deal. Most people, most households, this is something you started to learn how to do when you're 12 years old because most of them are have animals, even the non-herdsmen would have animals. And when it was time to go, that skin is valuable. You can turn it into a coat, into a, you know, a boa or something like that. Um, so you'd cut the skin. Note that you don't break the bones. You cut the skin. You shred the skin. It just says cut it to pieces. It's a very vague term, but it doesn't necessarily mean pieces that you keep, even though later in Leviticus, the priest that offers any man's burnt offering, even the priest shall have to himself the skin of the burnt offering which he's offered. So the priests keep the skin. In other words, nothing that I brought to the altar do I get to keep. A burnt offering, I give all of it up. So the skins are a way to kind of support the priesthood, and they could keep it. But in this particular passage, cut to pieces probably means cut to usable pieces of leather, but it could just mean scraps, just shredded, right? Um, So the skin's kept by the priesthood. However, the actual wording of this could mean you could have an offering where the the priest can – how do I say this? The priest can keep the skin, but it's not ordained that they keep the skin, right? They could give the skin away to say a rich Joseph of Arimathea. They could just hand the skin over, but it's theirs to give. They own the rights to it and they can keep it if they want or they can give it away if they want. Make sense? That's the rule. Verse seven, the sons of Aaron, the priest shall offer, shall put fire on the altar and they shall lay wood in the, in the order of the fire. So they have to lay wood in an order. There has to be an orderly laying of wood. The priest then, the son, Aaron's son, shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar, but he shall wash the entrails in its, and its legs with water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. So not just the animal gets prepared, while the person is killing the animal, the priests are sprinkling the blood and they prepare this place for the, the, the person to be offered, right? Right? So God lights the fire from the Shekinah glory and he puts the fire on that altar because remember when they open up the tabernacle, the fire goes. When Solomon opens up the temple, there's something that shoots out of the thing and the fire gets lit. That fire stays lit. So the fire is God's wrath. He lit it. He's burning it, and it'll always be burning, and it's always kept burning. Leviticus 6.13, we'll get to that. The fire shall ever be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. Your job in your contract as a priest is you keep that fire burning forever because God lit it. So God has wrath against sin, and that wrath is going to consume that offering, and that will make that offering go right up to God as a sweet aroma and a gift. To make it a sweet aroma, you have to clean the entrails. The only thing that doesn't smell good when it cooks in a bowl – is the stuff inside its intestinal system, which maybe didn't get cleared out before the day of sacrifice. So if you're Scottish and you're making some haggis, you take the entrelles and you (laughs) clean them out and everything inside gets suckered down and they do one final poop session, right? And that gets taken away, but it doesn't get put on the altar because it doesn't smell good when you burn poop, right? Very practical. Lay the wood. It's not a cooking fire, Do you see that? There's an order. The wood has to be laid in order. The wood is designed so that the flames consume it and you're not cooking it. If I want to cook meat, I put it right on that nice bronze grill and I let the meat cook on the grill. But when I put the meat on a pile of wood, that's not for eating. It's just to be consumed by the fire. Right. So it's important it gets laid on wood. That's another requirement of this sacrifice. It'll be spectacular, because when I do wood, that comes with flame. I can burn some coals for a long, long time, and it's not spectacular. But when I do a big pyre of wood, then there will be flames that go up that you can see from throughout the camp of Israel, right? Oh, there's a burnt offering going on. And if you've ever been to a campfire, it's just kind of fun to watch. Mm -hmm. So, and everything gets burned, nothing gets held back, it takes everything of worth and gives it to God. And I've made that point a few times, because I think it's going to, it'll come back around. There's clear duties for the priests. There's clear duties for the people giving the offering. Oh, we're into the rule book. The priests splash the blood. The offerer does the killing. They do the skinning. They get the benefit of the offering. The sweet aroma is Nikoha, is a soothe, quieting kind of peace, sweet. And Rayak, the aroma, is a center fragrance. It's a soothe and quieting fragrance. It's like watching a campfire and watching the smoke go up. It is a sweet, smooth peaceful experience when you see that, especially at night and the mosquitoes aren't out, you know, it's a good thing. Expression here is that it's acceptable to God. That's the purpose. It's a sweet aroma to the Lord. So whether or not you like campfires, God seems to like campfires and that's what he wants. So you give him what what he wants, not what you want. That's what Steph told me when I give gifts to myself for Christmas from Rudolph, that's not really a Christmas present. That's just me buying myself stuff. Mm-hmm. If you want to buy a, give a real present to someone, you give them what they want, not what you really want, right? It's like when I give Steph the new Call of Duty game for Christmas. That's not really <laughs> a present either. You give God what they want, and God wants this. He wants you to give something up entirely, and it goes up to heaven in a vertical relationship, and you don't get any benefit from it. You do it just for God. That's what God wants. Ephesians 5.2, Jump into the New Testament, And walk in love as Christ loved us. He gave himself up for us. Same idea. Jesus went up. It's a vertical relationship. He gave himself up. We hear that in the English language today. We just take that language for granted. Don't take it for granted. It's intentional wording. If you say Christ went up, and then listen to how the sentence ends, Ephesians 5.2, gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's not accidental language. He's referencing a burnt offering. Jesus sent himself up to heaven on our behalf as a burnt offering, right? The only thing we don't get to do is put our hand on his forehead and press into him a little bit. But it's just a metaphor, and we do kind of get to do that, spiritually speaking. Paul's arguing Christ was the burnt offering for us. I'll come back to the Christ thing, because it gets really cool when you put all this back together, right? He was forsaken, and he was given up, and he was aroma, and he went up to heaven. So now with the other animals we'll go through this part pretty quick. Not everybody had herds of cattle. I don't. What do I do? How do I come before the Lord? I don't, I'm poor. I'm broke. Well, most people had sheep. Your middle class had sheep. So verse 10, if his offering is of the flock of the sheep or of the goats, those are different animals. As a burnt sacrifice, he shall make, bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar. So different location before the Lord and the priests and Aaron's son shall sprinkle its blood all around the altar and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat and the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is upon that is on the fire upon the altar but he shall wash the entrails and the legs with water and then the priest shall bring it all and burn it all on the altar it is a burnt sacrifice an offering made by fire a sweet aroma to the Lord sounds pretty similar right So if you don't have a a cow, you can do it this way. The rules stay the same. There's some small differences, and I want to point them out. First of all, notice that it says on the north side, not the south side. So cows take longer. you got to skin it. There's more to deal with. There's more blood. There would be a whole – the sheep you can do really quick. If you ever get the opportunity to go and see a butchering, the small animals go really quick. Right, So the north side is they're just doing the business of everybody else. So there's an army of priests up doing this all day. Pri- priests are essentially butchers in Israeli society. It's what they do, and they probably got good at it. So there's a different space. Notice that there is, in the skinning part, the skin is left on for the lambs and the birds that come next. They don't skin them. So the imagery of the skinning or the cutting of the skin stays with the bowl, the full example, but on these smaller animals, they give up some of those metaphorical pieces. That doesn't mean those pieces aren't important, um, but the, by the, the, you can still give this lesser gift. The fact that it's treated the same, even though it's a smaller value, is I think a beautiful idea. God loves everybody equally, and the sweeter aroma to the Lord is exactly the same as the cow. The effects on the offer are the same. So it doesn't matter the size of your gift. What matters is that you give according to what you have. The worldly holdings have nothing to do with fellowship with the God, and God uses himself. He doesn't use a bull. We don't have a bull of God. We have a lamb of God. So when you get to the New Testament, notice the sacrifice God gives for himself, for the atonement of all the world, is actually a lamb. And I think that's kind of amazing. God's identifying with that middle group Um, John called Jesus that sacrifice from the first day of his ministry, John 129. uh, John saw Jesus coming up and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. That's not a compliment. (laughs) That wasn't John saying, hey, look at this awesome man you all get to meet, Jesus. I'm so excited to introduce him to you. Saying, I'm introducing you a guy who's going to go up in smoke on your behalf. He's our sacrifice. He's the lamb of God. And we see that as this beautiful phrase because we grew up in the church. It's a wonderful thing to say. It's a horrible thing to say about a human being. In that society at that time, that's the lamb you're going to put on the altar. You're going to press into Jesus. You're going to put your hand on his head and then you're going to slit his throat and cut him. And you're going to splash his blood all over the temple. That's who Jesus is. Jesus can now take the stage. That's the worst introduction ever in the history of the world, if you think about it, and, you th- and you've and you read Leviticus. Lambs, however, are continual and ongoing, unlike the bulls. There weren't that many rich people, and the lambs are all the time. And there's the continual aspect of the lamb that's a little different from the bull, in that it happened day and night, according to Exodus 29, 38 through 38 and 39. The lambs were sacrificed day and night, continual and ongoing. I think that's why God identifies Jesus with the Lamb of God. It's because Jesus is an ongoing sacrifice that happens day and night all the time. It's not just a rare thing. Okay, we'll do the birdies. And I actually did get to do – Grant and I got to go hunting with somebody who taught us how to skin a bird. And it's a graphic moment in my life. I remember it vividly. And the burnt sacrifice of his offering to the Lord is of birds – if the burnt sacrifice of the offering is of birds, then he shall bring his offerings of turtle duds or, or young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off its head, and burn it on the altar. And its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. And he shall remove the crop with his feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east side into the place for ashes. Then he shall split it at its wings, but he shall not divide it completely. You don't tear the body up. Right. Same thing with the lamb and the bull. You put it on the altar in order. You don't dismember the beast and put it on the altar in pieces. You keep it in order. right? You don't tear the body apart. You can cut the skin, but you don't break the bones. right? So you don't do that with birds either. You don't divide it. And the priest shall burn it on the altar and the wood on the, that is on the fire, it is, a burnt, it is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire. And the result, it's a sweet aroma to the Lord. If you're so poor that all you can do is trap a pigeon. You need no holdings or no income for that. Just go to New York, right? (laughs) Anybody that goes to Jerusalem can find a pigeon, and if you sacrifice your time, you can catch a pigeon, you know? And there would be people that taught you to do it, right? So you don't even need money. Anybody can come before the altar, rich or poor, people with holdings and bowls and people that have to go find their own pigeon. Turtle doves are beautiful. They're a symbol of peace, doves. But pigeons are an acceptable alternative to that, even though the symbolism's not there. They are easy to get, and they're in every major metro city area. Pigeons just exist, and they always have. They're like cockroaches. But they're a sweet aroma to the Lord because God loves the sacrifice. While you took the time to go get a turtle dove or a pigeon, you may not be a rich person, but you love the Lord enough to go find that pigeon and then give it up for the kingdom because you could have ate the pigeon, but you didn't. You gave it up. So the same heart is there. So we have bulls, goats, sheep, turtle doves, pigeons. Here's an alternative of things. In other words, it doesn't matter how much you give. What matters is that you give and that you give with a willing heart. Priests do the killing on the birds. Maybe because birds are harder to handle. Maybe because people getting birds are not people that have livestock and they don't know how to do it. Because it would be embarrassing to not to get all queasy at that point. And the priests are just like, and they, you know, at some point you get kind of new, you get kind of dull to it. Like it's not as big a deal anymore. Um, but the first time I tell you, we had it. You split the wings. You hold the wings down. You grab the feet firmly and you pull and the entire bird comes right out of its skin. It's disgusting, and it's fast, And it, but you kill it, you pin it down, and you pull it out, and there's the bird. You can lay it. You don't divide it and cut it up. It's not for eating. You give the whole thing up to the Lord and smoke. The crop that it talks about, I forget which verse, the crop of the bird, birds will eat rocks and other things, and those rocks are what grind the food up in their crop before it goes in their system. It's the same thing as cleaning out the intestines. You don't eat the crop, it's nasty, it's full of icky stuff, and it's probably disgusting. So you pull the crop out, you throw that away, you put it to the side. So those are the three different ways to give a burnt offering. So you follow the rules. This isn't pleasant. There's nothing pretty about a sacrifice. This is an ugly moment in life, but you do it because God says to do it. These are the rules. They know that because it's the rules, it'll be accepted. So we don't have to wonder if our sacrifice to God is going to be accepted. The promise is there. God accepts this. It's a sweet aroma. The first time you do it, there's got to be a spiritual effect because Israel starts doing this, and there's ongoing sacrifices all the time, massive revival. They've committed to live with God. They do a golden calf thing. It doesn't work. They recommit to live with God, and now they start doing it. And God says, this is what I want you to do instead of partying around a stupid golden calf. I want you to instead give something up of worth burn it all up for the Lord and let me just bless you as a nation. And that's exactly what happens. Joy then spreads from person to person to person as they give these offerings. And there's a lineup at that altar to get in line to go do this because the joy that comes in their heart. The first time you tithe, if you haven't started tithing, do it. It's kind of, it hurts a little bit because you're given something of value. But as you do it and you just realize, wow, money doesn't own me anymore. I can survive without 10% of my income. It's awesome. And that tithing has more of an effect on you, right? A couple larger points about the sacrifice, and then I'll go on to the next pieces. First, it's important to note that this sacrifice, this burnt offering, and this is, gets to the whole Old Testament theology and understanding the Old Testament. It can be one bull will sacrifice and cover an entire household. So at the Passover, remember in Exodus, they would kill a lamb and everyone in the household gets covered by that single lamb. That's an important concept for us as New Testament covenant people. One sacrifice covers the family. The question then isn't the sacrifice or the number of sacrifices or the value of the sacrifice. The question is, are you in the family or not? Are you under that doorpost or aren't you? do you live under that household or don't you? And households are big. They're not family, two adults, two kids. Households were hundreds of people. Are you in the household of God or aren't you in the household of God? That's the question, right? So it's important. And I'm going to just, don't trust me on this. 2 Chronicles 29, 24, and the priests killed them and they made reconciliation with their blood upon the altar to make atonement for all of Israel for the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sinner offering should be made for all Israel. One offering, an entire nation gets covered. Cool, right? I like this rule. This w- rule works really good, especially if you want to offer an eternal sacrifice that will cover the world. The rules stay the same. And the rules are established in Leviticus and, and in Second Chronicles. We get that specifically. This is important, the anyone idea. I've kind of mentioned a little bit. Anyone can give the sacrifice. The question isn't who can give it, who's good enough and who's not good. Anybody's good enough. You don't, even need, you don't even need to have a double income with no kids. You are still able to give a sacrifice. You can be a widow. You can be a widower. You can be a kid. You can be a homeless person. You can be a very, very wealthy person who ran for president anybody can go down to the tabernacle and give something of value. Anybody can give it. That's not the question of who, but it is the question of what. You have these five choices, right? And the what is really important. There's a tradition that you give according to what you have. You give the bull is the traditional first option. But if you don't have a bull, you give a sheep or a goat. But if you don't have those things, you give the birds. You saw the order of that, right? But the preference is the first one. If you have this, then you give it. And it's not okay then for a rich person to give a pigeon. That's busted because they're not giving anything that has value to them. Because they don't have to give their time. They hire somebody to go get the pigeon, right? There's no value to it, right? It's not okay. The sacrifice has to match the person's capacity to give. That's why tithe is based on percentage of your income. It's not a flat tax, right? So you shouldn't be holding something back. And if you hold anything back, then that animal's not completely burnt up to God. It doesn't ascend, right? If you hold anything out of that equation, God expects everything. I want to go to Acts 5. You know this story. This is what happens when you screw with this in the new covenant, Right? Sorry, I just said screw with this in a Bible teaching. Sorry. To... <laughs> if a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, the wife, sold their possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, sold a piece of land, keeps parts of it back. his wife, being aware of it, brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. They're giving their offering to the Lord, all of it. And Peter said in Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart with a lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? This is your land. You didn't have to give it. You're supposed to give it with a willing heart. Why are you lying? After it was sold, was it not in your control? You had the money. It's yours to give. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart and not, and, and not lied to the men but to God? Why would you do that? You don't have to give the cow or the sheep or the bird. You don't have to do it at all. So if you're going to do it, give all of it. They hold it back, and, of course, they die at Peter's feet. Right? They're struck dead right there. That's not the ascending to God, joy-filled spirit, release from sin, atonement for all my iniquities. That's not the moment I get. The moment is complete abandonment by God. Don't hold anything back. That's why I like the phrase all in. You're all in for Jesus or you're not. Don't pretend. Don't sully the name of the all in people by being halfway. Do the whole thing or don't do it at all. So why are all the rules here? I think this, we listened to that Star Bethlehem last week, for those of you that came, and one of the lines I like from that, one of the best lines is he says, what he really learned about studying the stars and seeing how they do things and match up at the right time for these events is that you can press the Bible really, really hard and it still holds up. I love that line. And I kept thinking of that as I did this. You can press what I just read to you really hard against the Jesus idea and it holds up really well. Like this is a perfect fit for Jesus in some pretty cool ways. I'll get to that in a second. So what we know is that the sacrifice has to be costly and it has to be valuable. But what's valuable to God? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? That's a Bible verse. I just couldn't find the reference to it. I'm sorry. I ran out of time, right? He owns all of it. So what's valuable to God? What could possibly be a male sacrifice without blemish that would have eternal value to an eternal God who owns and has created everything in the universe? The only thing God could give that would fit that criteria of costly to the giver is himself. He has to give himself. That's the only viable thing for God to give, right? If you follow the rules. Just because we start with bull and go to, if you have bull, then that. And if not bull, then this, like it's a binary equation, it doesn't have to describe God because it's a message to the Levites, not to God. But if God's going to give an atonement, a reconciliation sacrifice to renew a relationship with humanity, then there's something before bull that has to be on that list because he, bull is not valuable to God. So if Jesus Christ, then that's what you sacrifice. And if you don't have a Jesus Christ at your disposal, you give a bull from your herd. Does that make sense? So if you look at God and you think, okay, if God wants to reconcile with us, what kind of sacrifice would he have to give? The only thing that's eternal is the eternal God. He has to give a part of himself over. Leviticus then is for humans, but when God gives the same thing, he follows the same rules and he has to give that kind of gift, right? So listen to this. First of all, the identification with the sacrifice. When you press your hand into something and lean against it, there's an identity that you're going to be the same being almost. That life will be your life given. Does God identify completely with Jesus Christ? Yeah, he does. In fact, he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He announces it to the world. He presses into Jesus and manifests the holy, the miracles of God through Jesus to show all of humanity that God, that Jesus has power over nature. He has power over death. He has power over sickness. He has power over everything. And God you know, does miracles through Jesus and presses things through him to identify with him perfectly. Then you think, is he precious? Yeah, Jesus was precious. I'm not even going to go into that very much. Was he male? Yeah. Is there any reason why he's male? There's no reason given why the sacrifice has to be male. It's just that it was male. So it's almost prophetic instead of regulatory, right? Does it have to be without sin to be clean? Yeah, it does. (laughs) Jesus had to be without sin to be something without blemish that comes from an eternal being. Because an eternal being with sin is blemished. An eternal being without sin is holy. God has to do it willingly, Jesus prays in the garden and says, God, if you can take this cup from me, fine. But if not, thy will be done. I'll do your will. Isn't that beautiful? Free will. He gives it a free will. He doesn't hold anything back. The blood has to get poured out. Was Jesus' blood poured out all over the streets of Jerusalem? His blood would have been dripping from the first thorn that pressed into his forehead. In fact, there probably wasn't much blood left in Jesus when he was laid properly upon the wood that was put in order, right? His blood is everywhere, right? It's all over. It gets cast aside and they lay his body on wood to die, to be given up. But before they do that, they let his body get cut to pieces. Who cuts the body to pieces? The priesthood? No, that's not the rule. The priests don't do the cutting. They need other people to do the cutting. The Gentiles get to do the cutting. The Romans get to do the cutting, and they cut Jesus up. And they don't cut him into proper hides, and the priests don't keep the hides, but they don't have to keep the hides. The point is that the the skin gets cut, right? The bones don't get broken. The body stays together. It doesn't get dissembled into pieces like we normally butcher something. In these offerings, we don't butcher it. We leave the body assembled and in order so that it can be, well, rose from the dead, but we'll get to that in like three years. You don't see that Jesus' entrails are cleaned out because they didn't need to be cleaned out. Spiritually speaking, metaphorically speaking, he didn't have any sin to be cleaned out. There's no fire, though. This is a part where you really press into the Bible and go, but there's no fire. There's no wrath from God, right? Where is God's wrath burning this body up and turning it into smoke so that it can ascend? That's problematic because it doesn't literally happen to Jesus, right? Well, again... (laughs) There was wrath with Jesus. Look really carefully at the scriptures. Go to Mark 15, 34, and it's going to say that God actually turns his back on Jesus. You know these verses, right? At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is interpreted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus is on that cross, and God just says, you're done. Right? I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want your, what you represent right now is you've had the world's sin put upon you and I can't even look at you. What a moment to have dwelt with God your whole life and then suddenly feel God gone, right? That's the pain Jesus feels upon this thing. This is where I, this is where I love animals, right? That's what the lamb is saying to the human when it cuts his throat. The lamb's looking at him with that look like, why did you do this to me? why have you forsaken me? You're my owner. You've fed me my whole life. you are given me sustenance this whole time, and now you're cutting my throat? Now you're going to watch me die? You're going to take my blood and sprinkle it on the altar? That lamb probably was still alive when it started to see its blood getting spread all over the place, just like Jesus. Same moment, same imagery, same, not even a metaphor, the same emotional content is there, that same sense of betrayal. Yeah, Jesus actually felt it. Last, I'm going to argue, Jesus actually is burnt, right? You're trying to think of where the branding iron came out in the crucifixion. The word burnt isn't what we think of as burnt. The word burnt, I'll go back to the Hebrew, means ascending to God. It's something that fully ascends to God. No part is left behind because it all goes to God. Literally, within our laws of physics, the only way to do that is with fire, with the wrath of God consuming something, turning it into smoke and ash. But spiritually, that's not the only way to ascend to heaven at all, right? And you think of the ascension of Jesus and how big a deal that was to the gospel writers. He ascended to heaven. No part of his body was left behind. No part of his body was left in the tomb, just his coverings, right? A few sheets wrapped up neatly by angels were tidy, they folded their clothing, but, anyways. But the spirit, the breath of God is gone, it is completely given up, and He didn't breathe, He didn't resurrect, He didn't resuscitate. If you really press the Gospels, the word that gets used in all the Gospels is the word rise. He rose from the dead. Again, we take that word for granted because we grow up in a Judeo Christian society and our language fits that. But what a weird word to use. You rise from the dead? What are you floating? No, you're just alive again and in the old testament you get the breath of life put into you and you have a breath of life why didn't they use that language that's the language they would have grown up with but they didn't use that language he rose from the dead priests say it it's not just the believers in jesus the priests say it in in matthew 27 verse 63 they say jesus rose from the dead you got to deal with this romans the angels say it in luke 24 6 when they meet him at the tomb oh he's risen He's ascended to heaven. They're using the word, "Oh, he's burnt." You know, it's like uh, when spies get their identity discovered and their idea is burnt, right? It's gone. It's up in smoke. It's disappeared. The illusion of life is not there anymore. He's gone, and that's the word the language uses. And then the disciples use the same wording in Mark 16:9. I'm just going through the Gospels here. And in 16:9, they say, "Oh, he rose from the dead. He's arisen." he's a burnt offering. He's completely sacrificed on our behalf. Everyone says rise. (laughs) And this is really funny, except for John. John uses a slightly better word because I think John gets it. John did this Bible study and that's the last gospel to get written. He changes and he doesn't use the word rise. In John 29, he actually says Jesus ascended and he uses the same word. He's referencing this sacrifice. He ascended to heaven. He doesn't say he rose to heaven. He actually uses the right word. So it's interesting to see how the, goth, the the disciples are figuring this out, going, "Oh my goodness, he just gave himself willingly as a sacrifice, as a perfect male sacrifice of an eternal living God, the valuable most costly thing God could give. He was laid on the wood, his body was given up to the priests, his skin was to- cut into pieces and sliced up, and then he rose." In this beautiful moment after God had forsaken him, he rose from the dead because he was blameless. He, he couldn't die because death is the consequence of sin. And when you don't have sin, you can't die. So he went down for three days, checked things out, came back. Everybody says rise, but John, John 20, 17, I'm just going to read that next verse. Jesus says to her, don't cling to me for I have not ascended to my father but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and to your God. See what he's doing? He's pressing his hand into us and he's connecting with us. The sacrifice I just gave is yours too. This is a huge concept in the New Testament. Suddenly this just explodes to life and you're going, oh my goodness, not only did God give a sacrifice to reconcile to us, but if we're in God's family, my God and your God, same God. We're in the same family, right? I am ascending, or I have not yet ascended, future tense. I'm ascending, present tense continuing. It's all day, every day, just like the lambs. I'm always being sacrificed. I am ascending to my father and your father, same father. We're in the same household. To my God and your God, same household. That means my sacrifice counts for you if you want to be in my family. And all you got to do to be in Jesus' family and say, is say, please, can I be in your family? And give your life to him like he gave his life to you. This makes sense. I mean, this is language of Sunday school. You're just like, oh, yeah, I get, yeah, it makes sense. But there's a deeper theology to this. God makes the rules, and he keeps the rules. And those rules are where I don't have to doubt. If I give my offering of my life to Jesus, I don't have to doubt that that's going to be a sweet aroma to God because it's in the rules. Just like in the Old Testament, they were doing it every day, and they knew with 100% certainty, if I give that sheep, I'm good with God. We can do the same thing. If we give our lives over to God as a living sacrifice, just like Jesus remodeled for us, not only do we not die, we get eternal life. That's good. Our sins are forgiven, bonus, right? We also get amazing peace and just a satisfaction and a, a deep joy going, man, I am right with God. Isn't that amazing? I don't have to fear death anymore because I'm not going to die either because my entrails will be cleaned out. Jesus is going to clean my entrails. That's not a Sunday morning message, right? (laughs) But he gets the crap out of your life, and suddenly there's no crap left in your life. You can live guiltless and sin-free, and there's a joy and a thrill to that that's amazing. Last but not least, it's an eternal collective ongoing gift for Israel and the world that restores life to anybody who asks for it. Jesus is the perfect burnt offering, consistently argued by all the disciples and all in all the gospels and all the epistles. He's it. So in Leviticus 1, they're looking at that very carefully. They're pressing into it, and that's what they got. John 3.16, you've heard this like a billion times, right? Listen to it again. For God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I'm going to keep going with 1 John, same author. If we confess our sins, First John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Your entrails are going to get clean. <laughs> we we'll make some haggis out of you. First John 2.2, and he's the propitiation, another word for atonement, the same word for the bronze altar. He's the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world, community gift, just like they gave in Israel back in Second Chronicles. Romans 5.11, and not only so, we also have joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we now have received the atonement. They're all referencing this sacrifice. They're all referencing the burnt offering of atonement. God willingly gives up and sacrifices all of this for the hope that some of us, we humans, might reconcile with him. Our goal isn't to reconcile with each other. Our first and foremost goal is to reconcile with God, right? And I know some of you go to places where they teach that reconciliations with each other. It's not biblically. Reconciliation is only used in relationship to God. Biblically speaking, reconciliations with God. And when we reconcile with God, we can reconcile with the whole world everybody because all you have is joy and love in your heart. It's not hard to reconcile with other people. I love you man, did I do something wrong? I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. Let's reconcile. And it's not really a thing. You don't go through counseling sessions to do that, right? You just ask for forgiveness and you make things right. The depth of this changes your heart. You're not a person of the world anymore and it's, it, it sounds flippant, but it's not. It's a deep change in your character. You are made new when you accept Jesus as your sacrifice for your sin. And it's, it's an amazing, is it unpleasant? Yes. I still can't get her to watch Passion of the Christ, right? It's extremely unpleasant and bloody and icky. There's this thing where sin is bad. And to deal with sin, you have to deal with some of the nasty stuff, right? When you have to deal with other people and deal with sin, it gets ugly. It's nasty. It's not fun. It's hard to do. But the other end, there's this peace that comes, this, oh, I'm so glad. No agenda. Is it unpleasant to get there? Yeah, but at the other end is this peace and joy and restitution with other people that's deep and amazing because you reconcile with God first. Also, Catherine gave us that thing after we did the thing with Sarah where she goes, is there anything too marvelous for our God? And the Hebrew word meant marvelous. Is there any marvel God can't do? The answer is no. I thought of that here too. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? Is there anything too marvelous for the Lord? Jeremiah 32, 27 answers the question. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? The answer is no. There's nothing too marvelous for God. In Genesis, it's a question, a personal, quiet, hurtful question from Sarah, right? she's an old lady and she hasn't had kids, and it's probably a deep pain in her life. It's unpleasant. In Exodus, it's a story that gives examples of, yeah, Jesus, God's pretty marvelous. God can do, he can part the Red Sea, he can make the plagues come down from heaven, fire and brimstone, all that good stuff can happen. God is big. In Leviticus, that concept is something we can lean into because it's more than a kid's story. It's more than Sunday school flannel boards, right? It's this deep idea that God is that marvelous, and he can do this if he wants to, and he did. Historically speaking, you have all the gospels and all the epistles, but that's the Bible. That doesn't count. You also have nine extra biblical sources that atone to the basic facts of there was a guy named Jesus. He did live and taught. He was killed and buried and every single one of his disciples went to their death believing he rose from the dead. And that's non-biblical sources making that case. It's Is, is there anything to marvel of God? No. Is it pretty much historical? It's one of the most founded historical facts we know if you're intellectually honest. And I deal with intellectuals. They're not all honest. But if you're intellectually honest, there really is no historical event that's more documented than the resurrection of a guy, which makes sense. Somebody beats death? That's a big piece of news in history. So... Our response to that should be that we give a burnt sacrifice back to God. We do this. We give everything we have. It's fully consumed. It's washed, and we take nothing back for ourselves. Romans 12.1, Paul makes this request of each one of us. I beseech you, therefore, I'm begging you, brothers, by the mercy of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's a reasonable idea that if Jesus gave his life for us, we give our life back. It's a fair deal. A kid can understand that, but there's a depth to it that's amazing. If you haven't given your life to God in this way, following this kind of sacrifice, all of it, stop what you're doing because whatever you're doing is a waste of your time. Press into God. Spiritually speaking, lay your hand into this and trust that God will take those sins from you and take it away, you'll be reconciled to God, you'll be redeemed, you'll be made new, and it's not too hard for God to do that in your life. So we sacrifice our lives, because he's already given his, as an eternal, ongoing ascending to God that happens throughout all of eternity. I think that's pretty cool. And then you're like, dang, I love Leviticus. Right? This is awesome. And we still have four more sacrifices to give. And this is the cool part. The sacrifice we just talked about, I'm thinking everybody in this room gets this one. right? We give our whole life to God. That's getting saved. right? That's what that is. There's four more that they didn't teach me when I was growing up. And it drives me crazy. Why wouldn't you teach this stuff? Because then you have a bunch of Christians that have given their whole life to God, but we don't really know what to do with ourselves. Okay, well, God, you got my whole life, but now what? And that's the next four sacrifices. It's like, okay, this is how you... Do life with God, right? And it's way better than golden calf parties. Like it's really cool stuff that gives joy in your life that other people should see that you're a pretty joyful person because you're doing these things and they're not that hard to do. The tough sacrifice is that first one, right? The other ones have to do with eating and you start to keep parts of that cow for a feast and that part's really fun. So let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, I just am so floored by how marvelous you are, how amazing this is, and you didn't have to do any of this, Lord. You didn't have to create the universe, you didn't have to make us, but you built us because you loved, and and love drives what you do. Um, Lord, we are such broken sinners, Lord, that from our cradle we think about ourselves all the time. We're always thinking about ourselves. Lord, teach us to love one another. Teach the marriages in this room to be whole sacrifices to their spouses. To give up their life for each other. Lord, for all the single people in this room, Lord, teach us to just think of others every day. Lord, to give ourselves as a holy and living sacrifice. Paul said, if you can be single, do it. Because you can give yourself over wholly and completely to the ministry and the kingdom work that you have for us. Lord, this is has epic consequences. If this is true, then you have a plan for our life. There's a reason for that reconciliation. That we have a purpose, we have an we have work to do. And Lord, that we're here and we're living and we are waiting for your kingdom, Lord. Uh, We do it with a whole and happy hearts, Lord, but you do it because there's something to do here. Um, Lord, we just pray that you open our eyes to those things this week. Uh, Teach us, Lord, to love the people at our workplaces and our homes and our families, to do it without reservation, to hold nothing back, Lord, to keep nothing as our own and give everything to you. Um, Lord, if we can do that, as hard as that is to do, as painful and ugly as that can be sometimes, Lord, on the other end of it waits peace and joy and reconciliation with you. Lord, we want you to dwell with us in our hearts like you promised that you would. If we give our lives to you, you'll dwell with us, you'll fill us up. Do that, Lord, and make our lives wholly devoted to you. In Jesus' name, amen.